morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, if you are a guest with us, I want to invite you. We're going to be preaching through the Gospel of John. And if you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 1. If you don't have one, I want to encourage you with one of these. These are our scripture journals. Uh, really cool resource. If you're like, well, I didn't get one when the series started, that's fine. It's, it's just going to have scripture on one side and a place for you to take notes on the other. And I want to encourage you because we're going to be preaching through the Gospel of John for most of the calendar year this year. And so it's never too late to grab one of these. And uh, what I appreciate about them is that you can take notes as you study, as we study together, and uh, keep this in reference back to, hey, when I studied through the Gospel of John with my church family, here's the notes uh, that we took together. So I want to encourage you with that. They're $2 out at the Together Initiative table. Uh, that literally just covers the cost of getting them uh, and having them here. And so encourage you to pick one of these up. Uh, the next thing I want to uh, encourage you before we get started with is just a thank you from me to you. Um, sincerely, one of our core values as a church is uh, to create a family culture. And we, we've kind of been handed that. We've explained this. Uh, it's been a gift that New Hope's always had that we're just asked for this season to steward well. One of the challenges that comes with having the family culture is communication at times. As you're like, hey, that's the true in our family at home, right? We want to treat things as you would treat them in your home. And so we don't want to hype things up and make a big deal out of things because you wouldn't do that at home. Like you wouldn't be jumping up and down. And, and so when we get to these really important things like the Together Initiative, uh, we have that challenge of like, we're not trying to make a huge spectacle of it, but we do need to be clear about it. And so we've tried to do that over the last couple of weeks and months just to say, hey, as a church family, we decided that we were going to do this and uh, add on to the church building and prepare to plant a church. And here's what it's going to cost. And as a family, together we voted and we decided we're going to make this commitment. And so many of you have turned in these cards. And man, I'm really grateful for the response that we've had. As you fill this card out, it's just saying, hey, here we normally tithe what we normally give to the church. And over the course of the next two years, we're going to give above that this amount. And you've wrote that on the cards. A reminder, you don't need to put your name on it. Uh, that was just by request from the church to have a spot if people wanted to. And then you just fold it up and put it in one of the boxes. And many of you did that last week. Some of you are doing that this week. And I just want to sincerely say thank you for allowing us to communicate in a way that we feel is just more real to our church culture. Um, and seeing the response and looking forward to the future together as a church. Um, just thank you uh, for being a part of that. Let's pray and we'll jump in today. Father, thank you. My heart wells up with gratitude every time I think about this church. When I think about it, this church has impacted my family for a lot longer than I've been here. And for that, I'm really grateful. I love coming here and being with these people, God. That's a gift that you've given to us. And so we pause to say thank you for that. And Father, we thank you as we gather together, we look at your word and we learn from it. And so our prayer is that your spirit would do a work in us based on what we study today. And we trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this week um, a very true story that was one of my favorite stories that I read. It was about an eight-year-old boy in Ohio who watched a series of YouTube videos and taught himself how to drive a vehicle. Okay, no kidding. So after feeling confident that he knew how to drive a vehicle, in the middle of the night, he woke up his four-year-old sister and they got in the family minivan, and they drove to the nearest McDonald's in the middle of the night, two miles away from their home. 
That's incredible. Unbelievable. It gets better. They get to the McDonald's. They make it through the drive-thru. They order their food. Two cheeseburger Happy Meals. I kid you not. (laughs) They get to the window, and it's only then that somebody realizes something's not right about this situation. There are no adults in this minivan, and this boy is paying for two cheeseburger Happy Meals with his piggy bank, his literal (laughs) piggy bank in his hands. And then they called the cops. Now, what blows my mind is that this boy drove two-plus miles to get to the McDonald's in his town and was never noticed at eight years old. And here's the best part. Here's how this story read in the paper. When confronted by the police, the boy realized in that moment that he had done something very wrong and told them through many tears that he really just wanted a cheeseburger. (laughs) It's the best. It's a kid after my own heart. Eight years old, right? Now, I, I read that and I think, man, what is it about those moments, right, when you realize you've messed up? Like in the moment, like, oh, no, like this wasn't okay, right? This was not a good thing that I did. I shouldn't have done this. And the kid in tears, and that, you get that, but it's a bigger thing, right? Like when we get caught, what is it about us that rather than just saying, yeah, I messed up, I'm sorry, we tend to do one of two other things, right? Like we want to blame someone else, right? So like, what about my parents? They didn't wake up, like they didn't, no restrictions on YouTube. Are you serious? Of course I learned how to drive a car. Like it was, right, you can blame the parents, you can blame someone else for the mistake, or you justify it. Is it really a mistake? Aren't the driving laws too restrictive anyway? Shouldn't eight-year-olds have rights? Like you can, you can make it, right, so many different things. We'll oftentimes blame someone else, or we justify it. We learn this early on in our lives. Rather than facing my mistakes, man, it's someone else's fault, or was it really a mistake? Another true story I read was a, a, a husband and wife had kids for the first time, and they really wanted their home to be a place where the Lord was honored. And so they taught their kids what God had done by asking them a series of questions that they would answer then, well, God did it. So they'd say, hey, who, who made that tree? Well, God made that tree. God did it. Okay, well, who, who was it that made the sun? God did. Who was it that made Big Bird? God did. And like on and on, they just, God did. Well, the mom comes home after dad had a father-son day with the little guy, and mom was out doing her thing, and she comes in, and the place is trashed. There is snacks everywhere. The dishes aren't done. There's food. Like the dirty diaper didn't make it into the garbage can. Only dads know how to do that. And it was just a mess. And she asked the typical parenting question, who made this mess? And without skipping a beat, the little boy said, God did. God did. Because he'd learned early on, well, God did it, right? I'm not responsible. God is. There's something about our own mistakes that we instinctively don't want to own. And we find a way to blame. We are the victim here. It's someone else's fault. They did this. They're more responsible for this mistake than I am. Or I don't even think this was a mistake. Let me just kind of flip the script here and redefine what this problem really is rather than just facing it and owning it. I read of a a well-known pastor who says all the time, actually, he says that when he deals with a marriage where one of the spouses come in to meet with him, and it's just the marriage is really tense and things aren't going well, he'll listen to them. And a lot of the times they come in and they just immediately start talking about what the other person has done. Man, they've made our marriage hard. They are the ones who stress it out there. And so he responds to them this way. He says, well, now clearly the person who's really responsible here isn't here right now. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to draw a circle. 
And when I draw this circle, the circle represents 100% of the problems in your marriage. So just a circle, 100%. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to draw a piece of pie in this circle that represents your contribution to this 100% of problem in your marriage. And he said, without fail, this is what that circle always looks like. (laughs) He said, almost every single time. The red represents what the person who's talking to him says is their contribution to the entire problem in that circle. And so he'll listen to them, and then he'll say, okay, well, um, what's your contribution? He'll say, mine's the red, but them, the blue, the, them, they're the ones responsible. It's them that did this. It's them that, and so then he'll stop them and say, okay, well, clearly them is not here, okay? The, the other person isn't in the room right now. So what we're going to have to do is address just what we can control, and that's the red slice. That's what we're going to have to focus in on. And he said, without fail, almost 100% of the time, they can't do it. Start to talk about it, immediately it's right back to the blue. Immediately it's them. Immediately it's someone else. Immediately it's, well, the red is only there because the blue exists, and the blue only exists because it's their fault. And you justify and you blame, and you justify and you blame. You might call the circle the circle of responsibility. You can apply it to any relationship in your life. At work, marriage, parenting, friendship. What part of the frustration or the pain is your responsibility, and why is it so hard for you to own that piece of the pie? And we've felt this, right? Most of us in the room would be honest enough to say, yeah, I've been there. I don't really want to talk about it, but I've experienced this, this problem that I've got. And I know that my decision, my poor choices have created pain, but I don't want to address the pain. So I'll blame it or I'll justify it. Here's the problem. It's not working, is it? No matter how much we blame other people for our poor decisions, no matter how much we justify those decisions as being something maybe good and not bad, we're still left with the ripple effect, the consequences of those bad decisions. The Bible calls this sin. We have a problem. It points to, these things point to a bigger problem. We have a sin problem. And in my sin, I don't want to own my sin, so I'm going to justify it or I'm going to blame. And yet, man, the ripple effect is still here. I don't seem to be able to get rid of the pain or the difficulty that comes because of my sin, just by explaining it away. It doesn't seem to be working. So we've got to come up with a better solution. There's got to be a better way of dealing with this than simply blaming other people or justifying it in my life. There's got to be a better solution. And that's what we're going to see in the text today in John chapter 1. If you remember, John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 forms what John calls his prologue. It's where he's going to introduce us to some major things that for the rest of the gospel of John, he's going to spend time unpacking. So right off the bat, we learn that Jesus is the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus was there in the beginning. He's God. He has divinity. And then down in verse 14, he says, and Jesus being God became flesh and walked and lived among us. And then we're introduced to John the Baptist who spends his life testifying to this truth and saying, man, Jesus is the one. And now for the rest of the gospel of John, he's going to unpack this and begin to teach us. And that starts in verse 19, but a couple weeks ago, we walked through 19 through 28. So today, we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter, or John chapter 1, verse 29, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. John 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me. Who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. 
Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So John starts out verse 29. He says the next day. Well, the next day after what? Well, in verses 19 through 28, we read of an encounter that John the Baptist has with the religious leaders of the day. They've heard all of the hoopla around him. They've seen all the crowds. They've watched him baptize people. And they just, who is this guy? And so they confront him with that very question. Who are you? And if you remember, John responds with uh, their question saying, are you Elijah? I'm not Elijah. Well, are you the one that we've been, wait, no, I'm not the prophet. I'm not the one. I'm not the one. I'm simply the one who comes before the one. I'm the one who comes to prepare the way so that when he arrives, it's ready. Well, then the text in verse 29 says the next day after that testimony, he says, and here he is. He sees Jesus come. He says, this is the one. Here's the one who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's telling them, I told you I wasn't the one. I told you I just came before the one. I told you I'm not the Messiah. But guess what? Here he comes. This is the one who's going to come and take away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. John didn't fully understand what he was saying in saying that. He would later come to understand, but he did not fully understand that. And yet here he is testifying. Here's the Lamb of God. So there's four things I want to point out about this passage that I think are pretty transformative in our understanding. The first one is this. It's this title that John will give repeatedly in his writings to Jesus. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This title that he gives to him, you'll you'll read it in John's writings numerous times. And if you remember, there's a principle of Bible study that says, if it's repeated, it's... That's better in first and second service. Let's do it again. If it's repeated, it's... It's important. So you see some things repeated in this passage right here. You see John says, I didn't know him. And if you know your Bible, you're like, well, that doesn't line up because the Christmas story, right? Like John the Baptist is in the womb. He backflips when he sees Jesus. Like he knew him, right? Like and they cousins, they grew up around. He knew him, but he didn't know this about him. And this is why he says, and the one, I got the voice from God who said, the one who comes and the spirit rests on him. That's what he didn't know about him yet. So Then you have this title, the Lamb of God. Why is this repeated numerous times in John's writing? Well, it goes all the way back to your Old Testament. All the way back to the book of Leviticus, the 16th chapter. You know, right when you started to jump to the New Testament, you're you're in a Bible plan. Sorry. (laughs) Too soon? Yeah, it's January. I'm sorry. But in the 16th chapter of Leviticus, you read about what's called the Day of Atonement. And you may know it as Yom Kippur. This is a really important day in the Jewish calendar where God's people would gather together and the priest would get a goat, an innocent goat, and he, and as a part of this process, would lay his hands on the goat and verbally confess the sins of all the people for that year as his hands are on this goat. And then they would cast the goat out of the gathering of the people into the wilderness to carry the sins of the people away. To be an atonement for their sins. There was more to it. There was the sprinkling of blood and such. But the confession of sins and the goat gets cast out into the wilderness. Carrying the sins of the people away. Thus atoning for their sins. And a celebration would ensue. But every year they had to come back. Think about this. This is the problem for the 
excited worshiper on Yom Kippur. They would go back home, and immediately their life was defined by a countdown to next year so that their sins could be atoned for again. And look, let's be honest. We can probably piece this together. You don't even make it home before you realize you need that atonement again. Right? Many of us get in the car after church, and you you sin trying to pick a restaurant. In the conversation, where are we going? Like, where are we going? Like, we always go there. You always do this. You always do this. You're horrible. Ah, right? And like how many Christians like realize that, right? And so back then they would go home from Yom Kippur and they would immediately be, their life was defined by the countdown to the next day of atonement. Like, oh, 363 days, 17 hours, five minutes and 12 seconds, and I'll finally be forgiven again. Like constantly looking at when they would gather again and have that day of atonement. And that pressure. So here's John calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, was incapable of providing a perfect peace. Hebrews chapter 9 defines Jesus this way, though. Verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. So that whole process of casting out. He says, For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What he's saying is Jesus is the true and better Yom Kippur. You see, this goat that would be cast out with the sins of the people is where we get the phrase scapegoat. You've heard this? It's a popular phrase, especially in like mobster movies. You find the scapegoat, right? You find the innocent person who's going to get all the guilt and all the punishment from the people who should get it. And then they're like having to deal with all of that. Well, the same is true here. This goat is known as the scapegoat. That's where this phrase came from. And what Hebrews 9 is telling us is that Jesus is the true and better scapegoat. He's the one who would come and not have to keep sacrificing himself. But once and for all, he would be the true and better scapegoat to carry the the sins of the people into the wilderness forever, once and for all. No more countdowns, no more looking forward to some day of atonement, but instead looking back at what redefined everything about that future that you're walking into. Jesus being everything that you could possibly need. And John's making this point with that title, but then he includes something else in his writing uh, that stands out in this passage, and it's the baptism of Jesus. So he defines him, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then there's this moment where he briefly discusses the baptism. A few weeks ago when we started this sermon series, David preached a a wonderful sermon where he explained to us that John's writing was sometimes unique. There are times where John included a story that was unique to his gospel that you did not find in the other gospels that we call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then there are these times where there are stories that go to all four of those gospels. Though rare, this is one of them. All four gospel writers will talk about the baptism of Jesus. And so while John is brief in his description of this baptism, you can go to some of the other gospels and piece together more of the details. So if you have a Bible, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 3, where Matthew's going to give us a little more detail as to what happened when Jesus was baptized. Here's what he writes, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So you piece this together with Matthew 3 and John 1, and you begin to ask, okay, let's just ask some basic questions. What's happening here? That seems to be an easy answer, right? Jesus is being baptized. Duh. Thanks for like that. Let's move on. But there's more here. He's being baptized by John the baptizer, John the Baptist. But this isn't the first baptism that we read about in the Gospels. John had been baptizing people before. His baptism is described as a baptism of repentance. Meaning, repentance is, here's my sin, I acknowledge my sin, and I no longer want to live this way. I want to turn the other direction, and my life's going to look different after this. And so John would baptize people for repentance. It would repent of their sin and commit to living differently after that. The other thing that he would do is he would baptize people, and he tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 31. It says that I baptized with water so that he might be revealed to all of Israel. So when someone was baptized by John the Baptist, they were committing to being a part of a community that was longing for and looking for the Messiah to show up. Two things, repentance and looking for the Messiah to arrive. Now Jesus comes, and this isn't the same. His baptism is different. This is why John protests and says, I can't be baptized by you. Like, you need to baptize me. I shouldn't have to baptize you. And he, he has a struggle with it. Why? Because Jesus can't be baptized for repentance because he had no sins to repent of. And so it didn't make sense at first. And then the other part of that is Jesus couldn't be baptized to join a community looking for the coming of the Messiah because he's here. Like it, so it doesn't, doesn't fit. So the question is not just what's happening, but why. Why was Jesus then baptized? Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus himself says, we must do this immediately to fulfill all righteousness, not for the repentance of sins, not to be a part of a community looking for the arrival of the Messiah, but instead we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what's righteousness? Righteousness is living in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Here's what's happening. Jesus is getting baptized for two things. One, he's getting baptized to confirm and affirm everything that's been stated about him. He is the one who was in the beginning. He is the word who was with God and is God. He is the word become flesh. And he's beginning his earthly ministry. From this moment on, he begins a journey that would lead him to become the ultimate scapegoat for the sins of the people. To fulfill being that lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world is why Jesus gets baptized. And then the gospel writers include this. In fact, John in chapter one mentions this three different times. It's the Holy Spirit plays a role in this. So you have a picture of the Trinity here. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you'll see that in the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit plays a role in this baptism. John says three different times that he came down. And Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 tells us that the, the Holy Spirit would come upon the Messiah and rest on him. And so he's fulfilling that scripture. But in the same way, you see the Holy Spirit play out. This isn't the first time he's appeared. I don't know if you realize this, but the Holy Spirit played a role in your Old Testament as well. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would appear. And the Bible says that the Spirit would come upon people in the Old Testament. But it was temporary. People would have this assignment, this mission given to them by God. And then the Spirit would come on them to give them what they needed to fulfill that mission. And when the mission was done, the Spirit left. So you see, and King Saul, the Spirit came upon King Saul so he could fulfill this duty. He was anointed with the Spirit. And then the Spirit would leave him which makes this extremely significant in the life of Jesus. 
Notice how John describes the baptism of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 32. It says, the Spirit came upon him and remained. That word is really important to understand what's going on here. He is distinguishing the Spirit's role in Jesus' life from the Spirit's role in anyone else's life ever. He did not just come upon him to then leave him later. He came upon him and remained on him. This is an anointing like any other anointing of any prophet, priest, or king in your Old Testament. This is a permanent anointing. This is the anointing that would set Jesus aside from every other leader that the world had ever known. Here's what John is saying. Essentially, John was telling us that we were eyewitnesses to the dawning of the Messianic age, that the coming of the Messiah, and that this moment marked the beginning of his journey to become the atonement for the sins of all people in the entire world. And then on top of that, so I know it's a lot to take in today, but just track with me. On top of all of that, at the baptism of Jesus, Matthew adds in this little detail, and it's the voice of God. It's the fourth thing. Think about this. God speaks audibly for the people to hear the voice of God when Jesus is baptized. And he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I love him. This is my son. Now, if you know your scriptures, I'm just pop quiz for you here this morning. That phrase is repeated. And remember, if it's repeated, it's there's somewhere else in the Gospels where God audibly speaks and says the same thing. Where is it? I'm kidding. We're not doing that. <laughs> if you fast forward Matthew chapter 17, Jesus has taken two of his disciples, John and Peter, and he's journeyed to the top of Mount Tabor. When they get on the top of this mountain, Jesus begins to be what the Bible calls transfigured. He kind of begins to glow with the glory of God, and Peter and John are overwhelmed, as they should be. That's super crazy. And all of a sudden, like, what is going on here? And then two other people arrive on the scene, right? Elijah and Moses show up. And Peter and John are like, what in the world is going on here? Because if you know your Bible, Peter and Elijah, they've been dead for like a long time. But yet here they are on this mountain with Jesus as they're seeing some of God's glory with Jesus. And then Peter does what Peter does best. He just starts talking. He's like, Lord, I got an idea. Like, okay, Peter, you visionary leader. Here we go. It's like, how about we build three tents, three tabernacles for you three to come into. And one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. And it says this. While he was still speaking. Pause. I've got four kids. I've been interrupted a lot in my life. Like a lot. Right? You talk. They talk over you. They interrupt you. I cannot even imagine what it would have been like for Peter to have been audibly interrupted by the voice of God. It's like he only speaks a few times. And one of those times is to tell Peter, enough, like stop talking, dude. Right? It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, Peter, stop talking. (laughs) My turn. This is my son, Peter, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, one of these people is not like the other two. What you're seeing here, you need to understand. He's not like Elijah. He's not like Moses. This one is my son. He's the one in whom I'm well pleased. He's the one that you need to listen to. So you see, this baptism of Jesus is unbelievably significant. It's this moment that's set aside and marked in the life of Jesus where he will begin this journey for multiple years through multiple situations 
that will culminate on the cross where he will die for the sins of the world. He will resurrect from the dead, defeating death and redefine all of human history. And that journey begins when he's baptized. So there's the story. Why is it so significant for us? Why is the story of Jesus' baptism like significant in our lives? Why does it matter? Well, for, for one, it's the beginning of this journey, right? And in his deep love for us, he absorbs all sin. Please don't let these words just sound so churchy and familiar to you. But think about it. He absorbs all the sin, all the things that we justify and excuse and blame. He absorbs all of it. All the hatred, all the violence, all the wickedness that the world has. And he heaped it all upon himself on the cross. He paid the price. He becomes the atonement. He becomes the true and better scapegoat because of you and for you. Jesus did this. Which is why being a part of his community, every single person is welcome precisely because nobody's perfect. And every one of us needs a scapegoat. Every one of us needs our sins atoned for because every time we try to do it ourselves, it doesn't go anywhere. So let me ask you this, and please don't let this question just kind of like go in one ear and out the other. Just let it rest on you for a minute. Have you made the decision to allow Jesus to be the scapegoat for your sins? I mean, really? Or do you just keep trying to atone for your own sins with everything you're doing over and over again? Trying to work your way out of the pit that you found yourself in. Knowing there is no way out, but you're going to keep trying by blaming and justifying and blaming and justifying. And all of a sudden he comes and says, no, 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 this is the only way out. Have you made that decision? I need to be unbelievably clear with you. Okay, part of that decision, a part of that decision to allow him to be your scapegoat includes your baptism. It includes your baptism. But here's where I want to be really clear, so please hear me. We are not baptized for the same reason Jesus was. We're not. Now, we can draw similarities, and I think that's okay. But when I hear preachers and teachers say, you should get baptized because Jesus got baptized. That's why you need to get baptized, because you want to follow Jesus, and Jesus got baptized, you should get baptized. I love the motivation of those people's hearts. I do. Man, what a great motivation. And if you want to draw some motivation from that, I can probably have some room for that. But I think that's a really good motivation of the heart, but it's bad theology. You see, Jesus was baptized to begin his journey to become the scapegoat, the atonement for your sins. And when you're baptized... You're not on that journey. He was baptized not for the repentance of sins, which is where you do need that. Two completely different reasons. You're not baptized for the same reasons Jesus baptized. So then what about it? What role does that play in our lives? You can go anywhere in your New Testament to find this. Let me give you an example of the role that this plays where you can learn some things from him. First is Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter stands up. Jesus has already resurrected. He's ascended. The Holy Spirit has come. And Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon post-resurrection. And in that sermon, he lays out why Jesus is the scapegoat. He lays it all out. And in verse 37 of chapter 2, it says that the people were cut to the heart, meaning they believed what he said, that Jesus was the Lamb of God. They were cut to the heart. They could not leave until they responded to that. And they asked the question, what do we do? 
Like, I believe you, but like, how do I respond? How do I accept this? How do I, what do we do because of this? And in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, Peter sa- it says this, Peter replied, repent. There's our word again. Repent and be baptized. Each and every one of you, every single one of you, you believe, you confess that Jesus is the Lamb of God. You repent, you're baptized into Christ. And he says, that's for the forgiveness of your sins. And in addition to the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, we get baptized for a different reason. But there are some similarities, some things we can learn from Jesus' baptism. First of all, Jesus says to John, we must do this immediately, right now, to fulfill all righteousness. In the same way, the New Testament lays out, when you're ready to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, a part of that process, you believe, you confess, you repent, and you're ready to be baptized, you do it immediately. The other thing is, it says that Jesus went down into the water. We learn a couple things about that. He goes down into the water, he's baptized, he comes up out of the water. What that tells us is that Jesus was immersed. The word for baptism is a bad English translation. Baptism is a weird word. The better English translation is immersed. John the immerser. So Jesus goes down in the water, he's fully immersed. This is why we don't sprinkle. This is why when somebody's ready to be baptized, they're immersed into the water. Every time the word baptized shows up in your New Testament, the word means immersed. Every single time. And so you're immersed into Christ Jesus. You come up out of the water. Yeah, Jesus did that. The other thing is he consciously went down into the water and came up out of the water. So there's another similarity that you can draw from it, which is why we don't baptize infants. Because Jesus made that decision, and every other time in your New Testament, they make the decision to be baptized. They go down into the water. You make that decision for you. You're not doing it because your parents said. You're not doing it because your friends did it. You're making a decision in that moment to have your life changed by what God's about to do. And so let me ask my question again. Have you made the decision to allow Jesus to be the scapegoat, the atonement for your sins? If you haven't, I would love nothing more than to talk to you about that. I'm going to sit right here, and you can come talk to me during the last song. You can come up after the services are over. You can put it on your Connect card. We would love to do it. And if you want to do it right now, we are ready. The water's warm. It's like a holy hot tub, okay? Not, it's not really holy. The water's not that special, but it's warm. I just needed you to know the water's warm. We've got clothes. We've got everything you could need to make that decision right here today. And we would love nothing more than to guide you through that. But maybe you're like, hey, I've done that. I've made that decision. There's no better response to thinking about what took place in your life in that moment than to worship. To worship, to allow gratitude to well up in your heart, to look back instead of doing a countdown to wait forward and to know my sins have been forgiven by the only one who could forgive my sins, the true and better scape, the, the, the day of atonement come true, Jesus Christ. And so what better way to respond than to worship him? So let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And we're going to worship our king. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the true and better scapegoat. God, thank you that all the blaming and all the justifying can't fix what's broken in us. But you didn't leave us broken. You sent Jesus. And we thank you for that. Father, I thank you so much for everyone in the room today. And God, if there's someone who's wrestling with that, who hasn't made that decision to be baptized into Christ, I pray your spirit is working all around them as they're wrestling with this and that they know that this is a great place to ask questions and to learn. And Father, for those who have made that decision, 
Just pray that gratitude would well up in their hearts over and over again, knowing that they don't have to atone for their own sins. What a gift that we have in Jesus. And there is no better response than to worship him. So, Father, we worship you. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.